You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The, uh, the temptation to use data in a very uh, quick and relatively flip manner, um, that's got to be avoided at all costs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hey, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of litigants arguing in court that real videos are deepfakes. I look to Ben for better understanding of what the heck is going on with the Supreme Court. And later in the show, we're joined by Mark Aylesworth from Opaque Systems. We're discussing data consent and privacy mechanisms. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, uh, let's jump in here. Uh, You've got an interesting story this week. What do you got for us? Yeah, this one really is fascinating. It's from uh, National Public Radio. I actually heard it putting away my dishes while listening to uh, NPR News (laughs) on my uh, Alexa device. Uh, But the headline of this is that people are trying to claim real videos are deepfakes and the courts are not amused. Hmm. And of course, the hook for this story is somebody who just cannot stay out of the news, and that's Elon Musk. So in 2006, 16, he was at a tech conference and he made a statement about the self-driving capability of Tesla cars. He said that a Model S and a Model X at this point can drive autonomously with greater safety than a person right now. Mm. Uh, of course, now Musk and Tesla are being sued because uh, somebody unfortunately died when they were using the self-driving car feature. Uh, so clearly that statement in 2016 um, was was false at the time, mm-hmm. uh, or at least one could argue that it was it was certainly false. Right. Uh, Elon would be pretty screwed in court because uh, this would be evidence that um, he was particularly negligent or unaware of the risks of the self driving capabilities of Tesla, mm. and he's in the middle of this litigation. One of the strategies that his team uh, his team of lawyers is using is to suggest that this video might be a deep fake. <laughs> so Musk's lawyers say, I know. <laughs> it's literally like this makes the dog ate my homework look like a very reasonable, uh, well-nuanced excuse. Okay. Uh, 
So Musk's lawyers say Musk, like many public figures, is the subject of many deepfake videos and audio recordings that purport to show him saying and doing things he never actually said or did. Hmm. Uh, and they go on to describe a bunch of fake deepfake videos that uh, include Elon Musk. Due to this age we're living in where we have artificial intelligence and deep fakes, it's not that hard to make deep fakes and it's not that hard to find them. Right. I've enjoyed deep fake videos of politicians that I know are deep fakes, you know, Joe Biden talking about the Kentucky Derby or, uh, you know, <laughs> right, all right. of these very silly things that come from deep fakes. Uh, but what Elon is doing here is casting doubt on whether this video, which potentially would be incriminating in court, uh, is a deep fake. And this is something that experts in this field, both uh, legal researchers uh, and others who follow this closely, have been concerned about for a long time. Mm -hmm. That in this age of deep fakes, uh, anybody can deny reality. Even if you have airtight evidence, you can introduce... Some you can introduce some element of doubt by simply claiming that it's a deep fake. Mm. Uh, that's what some a digital forensics ex, uh, expert at the University of California Berkeley called the classic liar's dividend. I'll note that that was a term coined by a professor who used to work at my university, Danielle Citron, hmm. uh, and her co-author Bobby Chesney. Basically, the idea is that people uh, are getting more aware of how easy it is to make deepfake videos. Uh, so there's more skepticism among members of the public, and you can use that skepticism in court to your advantage. So far, it has not been an effective strategy. Uh, the judge in this case was pretty dismissive. This is a federal judge, Yvette Pennypacker, hmm. incredible name for a judge, mm -hmm. uh, who said what Tesla is contending is deeply troubling to the court. The, their position is that because Mr. Musk is famous, it might be more of a target for deep stakes. His public statements are immune. Uh, the court is unwilling to set such a precedent by condoning Tesla's approach here. Hmm. Uh, and this is not the first time this strategy has been used. In a couple of the January 6th uh, cases, and those were criminal trials, uh, a couple of the defendants uh, alleged that videos of them involved in the protest could have been manipulated or created by artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and that was not an effective strategy in those cases as well. Uh, old friend of the show, Stanford professor, uh, researcher, Rihanna Pfefferkorn, said that, quote, so far these seem to have been Hail Mary passes that have not succeeded. Mm. Um, and I think one of the reasons it has not succeeded, as she points out, is that courts have had a pretty good BS detector for hundreds of years, going back to colonial, pre-colonial times, our English legal ancestors. Uh, we've had a lot of experience in our court system dealing with allegedly fake evidence, mm -hmm. um, whether it's deep fakes or whether it's uh, you know, the allegation that somebody purporting to have signed a piece of paper didn't actually sign it. Uh, a mimographed document, uh, photoshopped evidence in, in digital photography. Right. So I think at this point, the court system is reasonably well positioned uh, to deal with this threat. But as more videos, uh, as more deepfake videos are created, uh it's just going to, there are going to keep being more accusations from litigants that videos are deep fakes, even though the accusations themselves in a particular case can sometimes seem silly. I mean, this is a video that's been up on YouTube in Elon Musk's case since 2016. Right. Uh, there were hundreds of people in the audience. 
Right. Right. <laughs> it happened. There were people yeah. there. I right. mean, right. that's what's so crazy about this. Right. Now, the legitimate journalists were the ones asking the questions. So, you know, it, this was not uh, a monologue that Elon Musk made in front of a single video camera or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's why this argument is so silly in this case yeah. and why the judge, I think, was right to dismiss it. There are going to be other cases where it's not quite as obvious and maybe it is a speech that somebody gave and uh, by themselves and just recorded themselves in their own home. And there's some question about whether that's a deep fake. Mm-hmm. And deep fakes are getting really Good. I mean, they're they're pretty compelling. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, it might be fun if you can fake out a good portion of the public. You can fake out a jury uh, and potentially a judge. So right, the threat certainly out there. I think this was just a ridiculous case to to try to invoke that argument. I will say, I think it's a particular problem in criminal cases because the standard in criminal cases is that you have to prove guilt. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. So as we all learned by watching the OJ trial, you don't have to establish that your client is innocent. You just have to cast reasonable doubt in the mind of the jurors. And invoking deepfakes could be an effective strategy to cast that reasonable doubt. Even if people aren't sure that it's a deepfake, because of that legal standard, if there is a reasonable doubt that a crime was actually committed because um, of some deep fake evidence, then that could have an impact on trials going forward. I can imagine the police procedurals being all over this. <laughs> I suspect they probably already have been. I, I bet they have been. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there. I haven't uh, kept up on Law, law and Order right. recently, but I'm right. sure there's been a right. deep fakes episode. Roll the videotape for the jury. Yeah, <laughs> rip from the headlines. Right. right. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions here. First of all, not to get too much in the weeds, but um, in the Elon Musk case, to what degree is he at all protected by the notion of CEO hyperbole, right? I was just making marketing claims. I was bragging, uh, you know, I was exaggerating. Is that a thing at all or It not? is a thing. Okay. I mean, that has been his main defense strategy. Okay. He's certainly not the first CEO to employ this strategy. Mm-hmm. It's basically the you shouldn't take everything I say seriously court argument. Right. Notably, right. we've seen that many times uh, in recent litigation, including Fox, the Fox Dominion case, where right. they explicitly told the court, like, you shouldn't take what Tucker Carlson is saying literally. Yes. Yeah. No reasonable person would take him would seriously. Would take him seriously. Right. Right. And I think there is sort of that expectation that CEOs are going to embellish, that they're going to make statements. You know, false advertising is not constitutionally protected speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you certainly can be punished in a court of law for false advertising, but the standard is that you have to have knowingly lied. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think with this type of hyperbole, somebody like Musk could say, well, you know, I wasn't making a definitive statement. I was just... um, you know, trying to extol the virtues of my my product. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is a little bit of leeway given there. Yeah. I saw someone recently state that we had this brief period of time uh, during which, you know, 100 years or so, 75 years or so, where we could trust photographic evidence, right? Photographic and video and audio evidence. Right. Like that's one thing that can't be manipulated. There's a photo of this person at the crime scene. Right. And then, uh, we had Photoshop. And so photographic evidence became more suspect. And then, uh, we were able to manipulate video and now to be able to synthesize these things 
from whole cloth, uh, I think is a whole nother thing. Do, do you think there's something to that? I mean, you make sort of made the point about this earlier that um, there's always, I guess from this point on, there's always going to be a certain amount of skepticism with this sort of evidence. Yeah, and I think one element of that skepticism is that it's going to play out very differently depending on who's on trial. Hmm. So people like Elon Musk can hire uh, expert witnesses, and they can take the stand and say, this looks like a deep fake to me. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk can pay anybody you know, a zillion dollars and have them go up and, and uh, give testimony along those lines. It's going to be much more difficult for indigent defendants, maybe they're victims of police violence, uh, things like... Um, violations of of human rights. Uh, And in those circumstances, uh, these indigent defendants or victims of crime, for that matter, might not be able to afford expert witnesses who can persuade the jury that something is or is not a deep fake. Mm -hmm. So it's going to have an uneven effect in our legal system. So it's also a concern about legal equity beyond just whether uh, this argument has any merit at all. What about just sort of popular opinion here? I'm thinking about, um, you know, with former President Trump when he was running and the uh, the Access Hollywood tape came out and, you know, the famous, you know, grab him by the genitals statement. I would imagine if that came out today the, with, with, with an audience already primed to be receptive to the notion of, quote, air quotes, fake news, uh, to simply dismiss something like that and say, oh, well, audio can be manipulated. Obviously, I didn't say that. Um, I kind of think, didn't he once make that argument? Maybe I'm misremembering. I mm-hmm. think at one point he did say, I'm not sure I actually said that. Yeah. Uh, but Tapes yeah, can be edited. Things can be sure, which, which is true. It is true. And I think uh, certainly he would make that argument now. And if people are primed to believe or disbelieve certain things, mm-hmm. then that type of argument is going to be something you can hold on to. Yeah. I mean, all of us uh, have our own biases. We mm. are <laughs> in... in any you know litigation, we can catch ourselves rooting for somebody, right? Um, and that can persuade us to buy arguments that, if we were being completely unbiased, we wouldn't buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for people who are Elon Musk super fans and want to believe that um, self-driving Teslas are the future, they might just glom onto this argument as a, a some type of fig leaf that they can use uh, to maintain what I would call their delusions, uh, but <laughs> right, that's certainly right. my, my uh, own biases speaking. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just something for fans to hang on to and it kind of cuts against this shared objective reality. And I think that could have a big effect on litigation generally. Like if, if there's just no actual truth, um, and we can't really make sense of the world, uh, it's going to be much harder to come up with, uh, acceptable legal decisions. Um, well, so that's certainly something I, I worry about going forward. If you're the judge and you're sending your jury off to the jury room to talk about these things and make their decisions, how are you educating them? How are you, you know how are you informing them to, to this is how you need to consider these things, these claims? I mean, in this case, the judge said, "Yeah, knock it off. We're not." you know, let's stay in the real world here, folks. But going forward, what is a judge to to do? Yeah, I mean, I think going forward, 
it's really going to depend on the case, but there could be some type of precedent-setting jury instruction relating to deep fakes that we see published in a major uh, judicial case. Mm-hmm. And that's usually how jury instructions develop is there's some uh, case where uh, there's a novel issue of law or fact and the judge makes a statement to the jury on how they should consider that evidence and other judges say, yeah, that's a good way of conceptualizing it. Mm. So I think we might see uh, over the next couple of years some type of standard develop where the jury instructions are clear. Like these are the things you need to establish in your own mind to assume that something is a deep fake. Okay. Uh, and maybe it's like three or four factors that they need to uh, establish in, in their own mind. I think we could see something like that um, going forward. But again, those jury instructions are never going to keep up with the changes in technology. Um, as deep fakes get more sophisticated, it's possible that whatever jury instructions are, are created become obsolete rather rather quickly, as we frequently see uh, in our legal system. Interesting. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, for my part of the show this week, I want to take us to a bit of a higher level here. Uh not that your level's low. I know. <laughs> I was going to say, was that a, uh, was that a secret no, insult? It was not, yeah. No, it was not. It was not. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about uh, co-hosting a show like this with a, a co-host like you is your level of expertise and things that I have a minimal amount of knowledge on uh, with all the legal stuff. And so I was thinking to myself, you know, I really want to check in with Ben about what's going on with the uh, allegations of corruption at the Supreme Court. And I thought our listeners would probably like to hear your take on that as well. Your knowledge is certainly above average with all this stuff, with the history and, and how it affects things going on today. So uh, I hope our listeners will forgive us that this is straying a little bit outside of our lane of, of the cyber I can stuff. already hear the complaints. I'm going to see it in our <laughs> reviews. These guys need to stay in their lanes. Right, right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, okay, fine. Fair Fair, fair, fair point. And uh, if, you're, if, if you're already agitated by that, uh, skip ahead to the interview, which is quite good. Um, so... Can we start off here? Can you just give me your take here? I mean, we, we've seen allegations of corruption uh, with several members of the Supreme Court. I think most of it is focusing on on Justice Thomas, uh, some of the gifts that he's gotten, uh, vacations that he's taken with uh, a billionaire who's also a major donor to uh, the Republican candidates and, and uh, all that sort of thing. I'm trying to keep this out of uh, the realm of being a right or left thing and just looking at the general state of the Supreme Court and and the standards we hold them to. I'm not completely sure that's possible, but let's do our best. What do you think here is going on here, Ben? How do you when news of this sort of thing broke, what was your reaction? My initial reaction is to shrug and sigh and say, um, nothing is going to happen. And that's, I realize, a very jaded reaction, but I think that's the reality here. Hmm. So just backing up a bit, I mean, the specific allegations with Clarence Thomas, uh, things have been kind of dripping out over the past several weeks. There's this guy, Harlan Crow, uh, who has been paying, off the books, has been paying for uh, a series of vacations for Justice Thomas. Um, the allegations got worse. Uh, apparently this billionaire also paid, uh, 
for Justice Thomas's great nephew to go to a private school, mm-hmm. and that person was a dependent for Justice Thomas, and the rules, the ethics rules, say that that has to be disclosed. If somebody's giving a gift to a dependent, um, at least for tax purposes, that has to be disclosed. And then the most recent allegation concerns the head of the uh, Federalist Society, which is a conservative uh, judicial organization. Uh, And the head of that organization, kind of the godfather of the conservative uh, legal movement, Leonard Leo, uh, had made arrangements to pay Ginny Thomas, the wife of uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, um, and included in some of these leaked messages which weirdly involved Kellyanne Conway. Hmm. It was bizarre that uh, her name popped up here. Hmm. Um, But in those discussions, uh, there was actually a quote of, let's pay Jenny, but let's not report that part, basically. I'm not quoting that exactly. Um, But they they were clearly aware that they were violating some type of ethics rules. Um, The Supreme Court is technically bound by a code of ethics. Uh, All nine justices recently signed on to a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee saying we adhere to this code of judicial ethics. Uh, It is binding on not just Supreme Court justices, but all federal judges. Hmm. Um, But the question is, if you have reason to believe that somebody has violated those rules of ethics, what are you to do about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, the justices have to police themselves, and so far they have been completely unwilling to do so. And that is understandable. If you become a Supreme Court justice, you have a lot of power. Uh, you, let's face it, get to make policy in this country. Right. Uh, once you're on the court, you're on it for life unless you retire. Um, so there really isn't any political consequence to your inaction. Um, I don't think you could shame somebody like Clarence Thomas into resigning. Uh, there's a political reality here. If he was forced to resign, Joe Biden would pick his replacement and a Democratic Senate would confirm that replacement. And that would change the ideological balance of power of the court. That is never going to happen. Has that ever happened in the past where a Supreme Court justice has resigned because of some sort of embarrassment or... or um you know, allegation of corruption or some scandal? Yes, it has happened in the past. I'll take you all the way back to 1968, I believe. It was Justice Abe Fortas who faced similar corruption allegations. Um, he was a very liberal appointee of uh, of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Hmm. Um, he was forced to resign due to these ethics concerns, uh, and Johnson was unable to name his replacement, uh, ultimately, it was Richard Nixon who named his replacement, and that did change the ideological balance of the court. Hmm. And when you say forced to resign, do you mean compelled through that quaint thing we call shame? <laughs> That's exactly what happened, and okay. I think we've lost that sense of shame. I mean, right. at that point, Walter Cronkite could get on TV and say, you know, this is violating the judicial code of ethics. Uh, this is frankly, illegal behavior, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the American public and thus their elected leaders would believe that, you know, this non-biased guy who reads the news and who we trust, the most trusted man in America, uh, has told us that this is corruption, and therefore this person is compelled by political pressure to resign. Hmm. Um, that's just not the way the world works these days. Yeah. Uh, most people are in a closed media ecosystem. Uh, if you are a fan of Justice Thomas, you are 
probably not going to be reading New York Times editorials calling for uh, investigations or calling on him to resign. Right. Um, you're probably not tuning in to meet the press and uh, listening to the musings of Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, you're probably watching Fox News where they are defending Clarence Thomas mm-hmm. uh, or one of the those other media sources. So there's not going to be that same type of groundswell of political pressure. I think it largely has to do with the change in the media environment and the fact that not only the, are the political parties so uh, vastly polarized, but that has filtered down to judges. Uh, and... The difference between a conservative judge and a liberal judge in terms of outcomes these days is so vast that it would just be catastrophic for the conservative movement to give up one of the most conservative justices and risk having a liberal justice nominated. It's Mm. a completely unacceptable outcome to them. And frankly, uh, Clarence Thomas could be caught carrying bags of somebody else's money on the steps of the Supreme Court. And that reality would stay the same. There's just no political incentive for Clarence Thomas or um, anybody in in that political movement uh, to do anything about it. Now, the one constitutional avenue that one would have would be impeachment. Right. Uh, You can impeach Supreme Court justices. Uh, First, you would have to have a majority in the House to uh, vote to impeach the justice. Uh, which opponents of Clarence Thomas do not have at the current time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So cross that off the list. Uh, And even if they did get a majority of the House, you'd need 67 senators to convict and remove from office. Uh, So currently there are 51 Democratic or Democratic-leaning senators. You're about 16 short. You could find all of the reasonable moderate Republicans in the world. Um, That's not going to get you to 67. Yeah, Um, There are certainly without question, at least 34 ideologically committed Republican senators from very, very conservative states whose constituents would never let them impeach Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's just, that's the political reality. And it means that justices are largely immune from consequences for, for these types of actions. What about the other members of the Supreme Court? Do they have any influence here? Sort of. I mean, I think they have a certain level of influence, but they also try to be team players. I mean, I think all the members of the team, court— Team corruption. Woo! Right, yeah. <laughs> woo Which is sort of what they did by all signing that letter. Right. Um, you know, the person who could play a prominent role would be Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah. Uh, I think he's a little bit more widely respected on both sides of the ideological fence. Mm-hmm. Um, The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, invited Chief Justice uh, Roberts to testify in front of his committee about this issue. And Roberts responded with a letter saying, nah, that's not going to happen. Basically, outside of the appropriations process, Supreme Court justices just do not testify in front of Congress. And uh, that would be a violation of the separation of powers and go pound sand. Hmm. Uh, And there's nothing that Dick Durbin can do about it. Um... You know, the Supreme Court, in order for it to actually do something, you'd need a majority of the members and an actual active case um, that uh, would change precedent and add some teeth to these ethics violations. And until there's a majority on the court to do that and a proper venue in which to take that action— 
that's just something I don't think we're going to see happen. Meanwhile, I think even the liberal justices, they realize they're in a deep minority. They want to keep collegiality with all of their conservative colleagues. Mm. So if they went around in public calling out Justice Thomas, you know, that decreases the likelihood that he's going to side with them uh, on some decision that he otherwise might side with them. I mean, he does have a quixotic streak to him. So you don't want to completely alienate him if you're uh, one of the other justices on the court. Yeah. I've seen uh, arguments that um, some of the things that they're alleging uh, Justice Thomas has done here are indeed illegal, um, that there are some government regulations for for reporting and so on that, that he could run afoul of. Does that matter? No. I mean, to use a baseball term, we don't live in an era of robot umpires where the law is just automatically enforced. Mm. <laughs> and like... Who enforces the law? Ultimately, it's law enforcement checked by our court system. Yeah. So, I mean, if the Justice Department believed that uh, Clarence Thomas had broken the law, they could try and bring charges against him. Um, that would cause a political firestorm. It would be there would be all these allegations of um, political corruption, violating separation of, uh, of powers. And ultimately the Supreme court would get to decide the legality of, uh, that prosecution. Uh, and if there are five votes against, uh, that prosecution, then, um, with the system that we've set up for ourselves, that would be the end of the story there. Um, the one other option I think it's is worth mentioning, and I think uh, this has gotten uh, a little bit of play in the discourse, is that basically you could use the power of the purse to defund the court uh, until they enforced their ethics obligations. Huh. Um, that's never going to happen either. I mean, you would need <laughs> a, the cooperation of the House of Representatives, which you would not have at this point. Right. Uh, 60 votes in the Senate, which do not exist, and a president who would sign that legislation, which, you know, even if it somehow passed Congress, would Joe Biden, he's kind of an institutionalist. Like, I don't see mm -hmm. him literally zeroing out funding for the Supreme Court. I mean, can you imagine the political blowback um, to yeah. eliminating the salaries uh, and other expenses for Supreme Court justices so that we couldn't have final litigation on important cases. I mean... Right, just the separation of powers. Yeah, like would, that would be a political bombshell. So that's right. certainly not... <laughs> Could end up in front of the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who <laughs> are working for free now that their salaries have that's been... right, and uh, boy, and they're pissed. <laughs> yeah, so that's another thing that's just not going to happen. Right. Um... Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Would it make any difference um, if Justice Thomas were not in the majority here? In other words, we have, you know, the conservative, we have a conservative-leaning Supreme Court, right? And uh, Justice Thomas is, in, is within the majority. Right. If it were one of the liberal justices who were, who were facing all these allegations— would we be in a different situation than being in the minority? I'm not entirely sure that we would. Part of yeah. it is about that collegiality and wanting to maintain good relationships on the court. Mm -hmm. I mean, through this, another allegation came up that Sony Sotomayor, and the, the nature of these allegations are completely different, but they have been thrown out there, Right. that Justice Sotomayor took a book advance from HarperCollins Publishing and then did not recuse herself 
from a case in which HarperCollins uh, was part of the litigation. And mm. she probably should have recused herself. Right. Um, even though, you know, this is not the same at what, as what Justice Thomas has uh, been alleged to do. So, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that if the shoe was on the other foot and this was a liberal justice, they would be run out of there. I mean, there's no mechanism to vote out a co-member of the Supreme Court. It would mm. come in the form of upholding some type of criminal charge. And we've talked about the reasons why pursuing criminal charges against justices would be, it's beyond a heavy lift. It would be like lifting, you know, the largest boulder in the world. It's just yeah. it's something that's very difficult to do. I guess I'm wondering if the if you could have you know the opposite of that collegiality. If all of the Supreme Court justices decided amongst themselves, we can no longer work with this member, would they have the ability to, again, calling up that quaint word shame, another justice into a resignation? Maybe, but if I'm Clarence Thomas, I mean, what's in it for me? Take a little bit, take a little bit of abuse from your colleagues. Right. Uh, actually, I shouldn't use the word abuse. Take a little bit of criticism from your colleagues. You're still on the court for life. I mean, what are they going to do? TP your office? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you are a justice according to our system, and if you resign, Joe Biden is going to pick your replacement, and yeah. that is the worst possible outcome for Justice Thomas and all of his political allies. Mm -hmm. So there's just no reason, even if he did have some type of sense of shame, there's just no reason for for that to ever happen. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, it's unfortunate that these ethics rules are not self-executing. They're subject to the whims of our political system. And our political system is just ill-equipped uh, to handle uh, these types of alleged ethics violations. Would you agree that ultimately this is corrosive to the, the whole system? Absolutely it is. I mean, it could hurt the institutional reputation of the Supreme Court. And you hear whispers of that from the justices. I mean, Justice Alito just gave an interview, uh, I believe it was to the Wall Street Journal, where he complained about all of these attacks on the court as an institution. Um, and... You know, I think that would certainly affect the court. A lot of conservative scholars are arguing that that's all this is, is a bunch of liberals, because they don't like recent Supreme Court decisions, are trying to attack the credibility of the Supreme Court for their own political purposes. And mm. there's, there is certainly some of that. Yeah. Um, the thing is, he pretty clearly did do those things. Right. <laughs> so, right. like, right. even if there are political motivations, it doesn't change the fact that those actions were still taken and those actions pretty clearly violate ethics norms, if not laws. Yeah, you see other, I mean, I've seen comments from other, from other like retired federal judges who've said, like, I wouldn't let anyone buy me lunch, you know, much less fly me around on their private jet. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think there is this sense of invincibility when you're on the Supreme Court. Literally, yeah. what is somebody going to do about it? You can be concerned about the optics. You can be concerned about... Um, the reputation of the court, but the thing that you should most be concerned with is your ability to maintain power and your ability to maintain the ideological balance of the court. And mm -hmm. I think that takes precedence over everything else in the mind of these justices. Now, I will say nothing in the Constitution says that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of um, what the law is. I mean, this concept of judicial review itself comes from a Supreme Court case, Marbury v. Madison, where the court granted itself 
the power to, quote, decide what the law is. Hmm. Um, and the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. Uh, they don't have anybody that can uh, physically enforce the decisions that they make. So in the long run, I mean, if the Supreme Court continues to take actions that cause people to view it skeptically and to lose trust, you could get a situation where their reputation is so damaged that a president or a Congress might say and might get away with saying, why are we listening to these people? Let's not listen to them. No matter what they said in this decision, let's simply not abide by it. They don't have an army. You know, what are they going to do about it? I don't think we're in that position yet, certainly not with the current political, uh, political leadership in this country, but... That would be the one sort of accountability mechanism. It's is, a chilling notion. It is a chilling notion. Um, they don't have a bunch of guys with guns who are enforcing judicial decisions. I mean, it's the executive branch that controls the guys with the guns. Right. So I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, that would be a legitimate constitutional crisis, but I think that's foreseeable in the long run Uh if we have actions from justices that sow this level of distrust. Uh-huh. We're not there yet. We're not close to being there yet. Um, we may not get there in our lifetimes, but I, I just think it's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Okay. Well, good discussion, and thank you for helping, certainly helping me understand it uh, better. I hope our listeners have enjoyed that, too. I promise uh, next show we will get back on track, but I thought uh, I didn't want to pass up this opportunity to maybe get some clarity and... Uh, Enjoy your expertise. So always thank you happy for that. to do it. Apologies to our listeners who don't like that that particular cup of tea. Uh, we'll be back to our our normal Earl Grey next week. <laughs> there you go. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Aylesworth. He's from an organization called Opaque Systems. And our conversation centers around the notion of data consent and privacy mechanisms. Here's my conversation with Mark Aylesworth. For a little bit of context, I've been in advertising and marketing for about 20, 25 years. And most of that time I've spent consulting companies in the in the advertising technology space who want to talk to advertisers, uh, generally that have uh, you know, large budgets that they want to use for advertising. 
uh, in in multiple channels. You know, whether that's search or video or or uh, you know everything in between, the ad display marketplace and and using their data appropriately, that kind of stuff. What I've seen over the last uh, decade or so uh, has been really a very interesting evolution about companies coming to grips with the reality that they just they, they can't just do anything they want to with their customer data. And what this has uh, sort of led to is um, really a pretty vibrant marketplace for companies that want to counsel them, that want to give them technology to kind of help them uh, evolve from where they are. And uh, also it's it's been kind of um, pretty rich ground for companies that uh, frankly are bad actors you know that want to take advantage of the fact that um, you know there's consumer data on every corner and so I think that uh, as companies evolve particularly the larger companies and I'm, I'm speaking mainly of brands you know brands with uh, with deep pockets large budgets and so forth um, you're seeing them finally uh, you know take the uh, consumer concerns that they're hearing um, and mix that with uh, some of the technology that's available to them and and really evaluating whether it's time to take a leap forward. Um, most of the clients that I counsel today are uh, interested in evaluating technology that is kind of out there right now, but that uh, you know is something that they can build into over a, a two to three year plan. Um, and, you know, I think it's a, it's a fine line, right? Because most of these companies, these brands, particularly, uh, chief marketing officers see companies like Sephora, uh, get tripped up in, uh, penalties that, uh, cause issues, you know, not just short-term issues, but, uh, long-term since, you know, people now point to companies like Sephora and say, Hey, you know, here's a, uh, here's a company that ran afoul of some of these regulations. You know, I remember there was that famous uh, anecdote from kind of the madman days of, of advertising where, you know, one of the big brand people said, you know, I know that half of my ad spend is wasted. The problem is I don't know which half. And it strikes me that, um, you know, targeted advertising and all of the data collection, I think, was kind of seen as a solution to that conundrum that, you know, now you could know, you could track, you could see. Uh, which parts of your ad spend were being successful. And and it seems to me that proved irresistible to a lot of companies. And it's taken a while for us to kind of contend with that. You know, I think I see companies today saying that, you know, where we used to collect data on everything, now they consider data to almost be radioactive. You know, you get too much of it in one place and maybe bad things could happen. I'm curious for your insights on on that. As someone who's been in this space for as long as you have been, first of all, is my perception of kind of the evolution of this at all accurate? Uh, I think it is. And, you know, I think if I were to uh, go back in memory to when I, I first got my start as a media planner uh, working at Ogilvy & Mather, uh, mm. at, the, at the time we were uh, just kind of, you know, building magazine advertising media plans for uh, the Craftsman Hand and Power Tools brand and, you know, great right. memories. But we were always sort of confounded with that, you know, I, I know that half of my dollars are being wasted challenge, you know, and our, our ad clients would say, you know, how do we get a better handle on this? And I think, you know, fast forward 20 years, uh, we we have been able to 
get a much better handle on it. Perhaps we've kind of created a monster that we're all sort of you know, running from at the moment. But I see it as a as an evolution from you know better targeting, which is a really very sincere objective among media planners and buyers, uh, you know, back in the '90s and, and early 2000s. And how do we leverage digital technologies to, you know, for example, improve the way we do uh, targeting on a content basis? How do we improve, uh, you know, creating experiences with impact in contextual uh, targeting and, and opportunities there? And it, it's really come full circle from. The you know better targeting has led to better measurement, but it's also created a feedback loop that is highly dependent on identifiable data. So whether it's hmm. device IDs that can be you know tied back to actual uh, person level profiles, um, or it's something new, you know, technologies that uh, are actually listening in and, and uh, transcribing conversations to be able to pluck out contextual details to fuel ad targeting into the future. You know, we've kind of um, gotten a little bit crazy drunk on the capability of the technology. Um, and I think it's time for, you know, more responsibility to catch up to that. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a uh, entities at the federal or state level that are going to ultimately uh, enforce that kind of responsibility, or if it's going to be self-regulation, time will tell. But you know, I I think that um, you know it's it's clearly time where we have to uh, put a stop to some of the craziness that's going on. Yeah, I remember back in the '90s, I was one of those people who. I think I was pretty enthusiastic about the notion of targeted advertising. You know, it's that that I would see the things I was interested in, and I wouldn't have my time wasted by seeing ads for things I wasn't interested in. And this seemed like a good rational idea at the time. And then time passed, and it felt like all of a sudden ads were following me around. You know, <laughs> like I could. There's no escaping. You know, I I made the mistake of searching for one thing, and wherever I looked, there that thing would be. It started to get a little creepy. Um, and I think, uh, to, you know, you, you, to your point that perhaps we've gone a little too far, do you think we're going to be capable of clawing this back now that organizations have gotten so used to having as much information and power as they do? Um, have they grown too politically powerful to be able to claw this back? Well, that's a great question. And I, I think there's um, irresponsibility that is born from a lack of knowledge and which is, you know, really sort of um, classified legally as negligence. <laughs> and mm, then there's mm. the then there's the intentionality that comes from, you know, what kind of crazy things can we really do if we took the shackles off with this data? And and I think I think really most of you know what's driving concern is the former. You know, just sort of. Uh, you know, very unintentional, almost accidental uh, uh, challenges with data today. Um, and the one of the reasons why I joined the company I presently work for is because, um, and opaque, by the way, is, uh, you know, kind of putting a stake in the ground in a, um, a section of computing called confidential computing. And mm. there are broad applications of confidential computing principles that I believe will show up in ad tech over the next couple of years. And, you know, really to, to kind of sum that up is it's encryption technology that allows uh, marketers, uh, data providers, 
publishers to be able to share data back and forth for the benefit of better targeting, for the benefit of better measurement, and and uh, and so forth, without actually allowing any of those uh, negligent mistakes to actually happen. So if you encrypt all the data before you begin uh, collaboration, there's absolutely zero risk that somebody could, uh, you know, break in and, and steal the data or that, you know, a file is going to show up on, on someone else's computer that wasn't intended to be there. Can you blame folks for being a little cynical about this? I mean, what you describe sounds great, but uh, at the same time, there's a part of me that thinks to myself, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Absolutely. I mean, I get a, you know, I have that that feeling myself at times when, you know, I'll be in conversation with somebody and I'm, I'm nearby, you know, say a, um, you know, a living room device, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm kind of curious how much information it's actually picking up because I'll have a conversation about, you know, the Maldives or some TV show that, uh, you know, recently was on. And then all of a sudden, you know, you go back online, you go into your digital environments and suddenly you realize like the, the ads are, have clearly leveraged that uh, reality. And so the creep factor goes way, way up. Um, yeah, but I, I definitely hear the cynicism. <laughs> Opaque is about providing protection for that, you know, data because companies are going to use it; they're going to leverage it in some way. And there is that fine line between providing a customer with um, or a potential customer with relevance and relevant experiences with um, irresponsible use of the data. What would the ideal outcome look like to you if, if we were able to come up with something where, you know, everybody could get at least part of what they're looking for here? Is is there something that you can envision where everybody could be happy? Like an ad tech utopia? <laughs> not, yeah. You can dream, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, if I if I really put my thinking cap on and you know, thought into the future, is there a way for consumers to say, I'd like to do some hand raising that would allow me an experience where um, the stuff that I want to buy, the experiences that I want to have, those are the things that sort of break through that, um, that, that sort of privacy membrane and end up at my desk. And would I be able, as a consumer, I'm speaking as a consumer now, you know, mm. would I be able to trade a little bit more of the data that I uh, create in my digital experiences in order to have them more tailored and more relevant? Um, I think that is, you know, certainly my vision of a of an ad tech utopia where you know I can I can wake up on a Saturday morning. And I can say, I uh, need a brand new suit, you know, uh, for this upcoming conference. Um, you know, I can issue my parameters in an interface somewhere. And then throughout the next week, uh, be, you know, passively exposed to all kinds of opportunities to buy that new suit. What about the opportunity for folks to opt out? Is, is that even plausible these days? You know, it's um, it's a legal requirement in many of the uh, rules and regulations, uh, particularly at a state level. Uh, the right to be forgotten is, uh, you know, how it's referred to. But uh, but I think that's that's a, a, a very important provision. 
that a lot of companies uh, don't get correct. And, you know, we see it a lot in the, uh, the data broker marketplace. You know, many of these companies get a bad rap because, uh, you know, people want to say data brokers are the boogeyman. But at the end of the day, they're, you know, providing a, a very critical service. And if they're able to layer in consent, whether it's, you know, provided on a cookie basis or a kind of a universal personal basis, like I don't want to be tracked at all kind of consideration, uh, I think, you know, they provide a, a huge opportunity for market, marketers to get smart, smarter about how they're targeting. What's your advice for organizations then in, in terms of you know, how they approach the collection, the storage, the use of the data that's available to them? Do you have any words of wisdom? I think in terms of the where to get started, it has a lot to do with um, you know your supplier ecosystem, beginning to understand what kind of technologies uh, form the stack that you're using uh, to work on um, ad campaigns, to deliver ad campaigns, and so forth, certainly to measure ad campaigns. Secondly, it has a lot to do with uh, managing consumer consent and being able to understand which of your current customers have uh, you know, requested either through a preference center um, or through some other means, you know, they would uh, prefer not to be contacted. They would prefer you know, not to have you uh, deal with them as a, as a unit of data. And you've got to, those are two important building blocks. I think culturally as a company, uh, you know, the, the marketer has to, um, you know, have very well schooled, uh, uh, top level legal folks that are able to keep apprised of, uh, you know, what's going on from a, a state level rules and regs perspective. Um, and if they don't have that in house, they should definitely get that, uh, you know, externally. That's for sure. Uh, but, um, you know, those are, those are sort of building blocks. And then the, uh, the temptation to use data in a very, uh, quick and relatively flip manner, um, that's gotta be avoided at all costs. And, you know, kind of a short story, maybe five, six years ago dealing with, um, a member of my sales team who let me know that, uh, you know, uh, someone at an ad agency had forwarded him a file, uh, which contained, uh, curiously, uh, the first column of that file contained 16 digit numbers that began with either a four or a five. The file size being about, you know, a million rows or so. And it's like the, uh, you know, this data came from somewhere, you know, wasn't manufactured at the ad agency. And, you know, we, we know exactly what that was. And so the horror that we felt as, you know, the receiving company, you know, we're just trying to help these folks out, was um, uh, pretty stark. And to the extent that that happens today, I mean, you've got, as, as a marketer, you've got to make sure that, you know, that kind of information, there's no opportunity for it to leave the building. What do you think? So I think it was a really interesting interview uh, talking about the incentive for businesses to stay ahead of your competitors uh, in terms of privacy protections. And that creates a positive incentive structure where 
Part of a business's bottom line is dependent on their privacy mechanisms, and we're moving into an age where that sort of thing really matters. Uh, so I thought it was really an inter- uh, interesting interview. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Mark Ellsworth from Opaque Systems for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at N2K. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like Caveat are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.